We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. Personally, I don't think there's anything better to do on a cold, damp Tuesday than talk about Jesus, and we'd love to have you do that. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life or in this crazy world. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and remember if you're driving in your car especially on these wet streets the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen you'll be connected directly to our studio producer and everything else is hands free got nothing going on so let me get right to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls the first one is from John He says, Hi, Pastor Ron, do you see the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs as an expression of God-given love between a husband and wife or as an allegory for God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God? Given First and Second Kings, I'm having trouble seeing the allegorical argument. Israel didn't seem to love God very much. Thank you. Uh, John, I appreciate the question. Um, as I, a lot of you know, because I've had opportunities to talk about this, the Song of Songs, uh, I think, is sort of the the pinnacle of our scriptures. Um, it has such great value in so many ways. And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes while we await your phone calls. First and, and, and most important, John, I see the Song of Songs uh as a, a historical um, telling of a story. We know that Solomon wrote a thousand songs. The Bible tells us that. But this is the only one that was written by God. God, the Holy Spirit, pushing the pen of Solomon, the king of Israel. And so this is, we, we can't lose the historical fact that this was a, uh, a real love story between two people. One of them just happened to be the king of Israel, and the other was the the woman who took his breath away the first time that he saw her. So it is an historical accounting of a real-life love story. I can almost see Solomon, uh, his chest thumping as he writes this, thinking about the one girl that really had his heart. And when we realize that Solomon had a thousand wives, that's saying a lot. So it is an expression of an historical accounting of a relationship. But it also is an allegory 
And and I would add another word. It's a prophetic allegory because this isn't about God's love for Israel. God's love for Israel is undeniable. It's established from the very beginning of our Bible. But it's an allegory prophetically of the love of Jesus Christ for his church. Now, let me try to explain. Um, While this is a real story involving two people, uh, the Shulamite um, woman and uh, King Solomon, uh, we need to remember that Solomon was a king. Uh, Solomon, evidently, there were times when he liked to get out uh, from the palace and, and mingle among the people. And here's what he would do. He would dress up in disguise. He would go out as a commoner. And people with his face covered in the Middle East, that was typically the the, the way it was, uh, people wouldn't realize that it was Solomon. Well, on one of his trips, maybe just sort of checking out uh, the, the, the vineyards that he owned or the hillsides, who knows. But on one of those trips, he saw this girl that took his breath away. And the Song of Solomon is a, a, a short uh, accounting of that relationship. Now, this book is not chronological. So it's, it's poetic in form, and it just demonstrates how crazy in love he was with her and, and how crazy in love she was with him. But he has to leave because he's king. And so what Solomon does is he goes back to be the king. He's got to return to to duty. And he leaves her there and she's thinking about him and he's thinking about her. And he can't wait so he comes back to her. But this time, after an absence of some time, this time he returns with his whole entourage and his chariot. and, And people would be able to see them. And, and the dust coming up from the hooves of the horses and the, the chariots and the entourage. And everybody would know, it's Solomon, it's Solomon. Why is the king here? And the king pulled up in front of this one girl's home, a girl who had been unloved by her family, a girl who'd been taken advantage of. And Solomon gets out, and I can almost picture him getting on one knee and saying, you're the love of my life. I want you to be my wife. And, of course, she's starstruck, and all the people around looking at King Solomon, why is he here, and what does he have with her? Let me go one step back, John. King Solomon, when he was stricken by her beauty, he looked at her and said, oh, beautiful you are, my darling, and she would think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just ordinary. She, she didn't look like the beautiful women, at least by the standard of that day. She was lean. She was tan. Now, our culture thinks that's beautiful, but back then it was just the opposite. And Solomon had to convince her how beautiful she was. And, of course, we know that they married. And the expression in the Song of Solomon's is... The, the allegorical expression, Solomon represents Jesus. The Shulamite represents his church, represents each and every one of us individually. And that's why we need to read, and I use this in counseling all the time, we need to read this book, especially for those who believe that God has a hard time loving them. We need to read the parts of the book that are headed, t- uh, head, titled Lover, because that's Jesus speaking directly to his church. It's Jesus speaking directly to, to each of us individually as believers. Oh, beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. And she would look and be embarrassed. Oh, shucks, I'm not all that. He would convince her that he is. And so this is a love story. The love that Jesus has for his church. So it is historical, but it's also allegorical. One final thought. It is also, John, and you're right about this, an expression of how a marriage between a husband and a wife ought to function. So, John, thank you for the question. I love the book. And by the way, this is a book that we ought to read a lot. It is also a book that um, um, can be used productively for marriage, pre-marriage, or marriage counseling uh, as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate, John, the question. Let's go to Ron from Bernie on line one. Ron, thank you for being patient. You are on the air. 
Uh, thanks for taking my call, Pastor Ron. Um, I, my wife is, uh, I think, in her final hours of uh, Alzheimer's. I'd like for you to pray for her. Her name is Marilyn. You know who I am. Oh, yes, I know who yes, you are, Ron. I am so sorry. Did you say with Alzheimer's? Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, Ron, uh-huh. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Um, let me pray now. I don't have anything to add except my prayers. Dear God, if Marilyn is truly about to meet you, what a glorious moment for her that will be. Lord, our bodies get ravaged with illness and disease. And you're about to free Marilyn from that kind of pain, from that trap. And now, Lord, I pray that as you send your angel to get her, and she steps out of that old, tired body, I pray, Father, that she, the moment she's in your presence, she will gasp with life, freed from the chains, from the bondage of this world, and free finally at last. Lord, wrap your arms around her and bring her to you with, in peace, and do so speedily, Lord, and for Ron. Lord, we who are left behind, we're the ones who hurt. We grieve, but we don't grieve like those with no hope. And Ron will see Marilyn again. And by the power of your Spirit, Lord, would you wrap your arms around him and bring him to a place that is so peaceful. Your word describes it as beyond understanding. And Jesus, you be his source of comfort. Lord, do this for your glory. Amen. Ron, I'm so sorry. And I I know the loss, the pain can be overwhelming. But Jesus will be there with you. And God bless you. And I can't wait to meet Marilyn one day in the presence of the Lord. Ron, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you very much. I appreciate Uh it very much. Uh, My question, I probably would have trouble getting it out today. I'll call you another time about questions I have on Revelation, unless you'd like to take okay. it now. No, like we'll, we'll it do it another time. Yeah, I know. Okay. We'll do it another time, Ron. I want to think, I want to be praying for you and for Mary. Thank you very, very I, much. I appreciate, I appreciate it very much, Pastor Ron. Okay. Thank you. Mm, God bless. Oh, hard stuff. You know, life can be hard. Uh, as a pastor, and I've been so many deathbeds. Uh, it's always a glorious time. It's always a glorious time. I've been there so often in that moment when the believer went to see the goal of their salvation. And it's always wonderful, but then you have to come out of that room and you're immediately have to deal with the pain and the grief of the survivors. And it truly is hard And I would ask the audience to be praying for Ron. Marilyn won't need prayer. But Ron will. So we pray that her going will be peaceful for both. (sighs) Let me gather myself. Here's a question from Eric. He says, Pastor Ron, what is meant by worshiping in spirit and truth? Um, Eric, what's really meant by this, Jesus said, and this was the conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, and she was sort of parsing with him uh, as she knew how to do all too well in her conversations with men. Um, sort of what's the right way to worship? We Jews say you have to worship here, and, and, and are we Samaritans say you have to worship this way? You Jews say you have to worship this way. And Jesus said, let me clear up the, the question for you. We have to worship in spirit and in truth. God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. What's meant by that is worshiping first from a position of holiness, a position of closeness, because our sins have been forgiven. There's nothing holy about us, Eric. 
But when we repent, when we confess our sins and we repent and we become perfect in the eyes of God, I can go back to the first question from the Song of Songs. All beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. Now, we still feel flawed. But what Jesus wants us to do is worship him from that position of his righteousness freely given. Second, it means that we worship him in sincerity, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now, this isn't, Eric, about singing songs, although one of the ways that we express our worship uh, to, to the Lord is in song. And I think for New Testament Christians, we've got to be in that position where we can look at the at the songs that we're singing and, and, and own the lyrics. We can praise him because our hearts are grateful. Make no mistake, if we're worshiping him in spirit and truth, we're worshiping from a grateful heart. We worship because of what he's done. We worship because of his marvelous grace. We worship because of his infinite love. And then when we're singing the lyrics to those songs, Amazing Grace for the old schoolers and for the, the new schoolers, any of the words that, that we sing in our worship songs, we need to be able to say that without any hindrance. And when we sing, Lord, I, I give my, my heart to you. I remember the famous worship song uh, by Darlene Zeck, um, um, Shout to the Lord. Um, we have to be able to do that. If if we're being in d- disobedient, then we're not worshiping either in spirit or in truth. And we're actually condemning ourselves by singing the words to songs like that. Holy, holy, holy. Another song that we sing. If you're not interested in personal holiness, then you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. So what it means, Eric, is that we're worshiping God on his terms. We're not making excuses for the sins in our lives. We're not rationalizing that it's okay for us to do this particular thing or that particular thing when we know it displeases God. And the beauty of this, Eric, is that when we are truly worshiping in spirit and truth, God is like a a sponge in heaven. He's taking it all in and it brings him such delight. It brings him such joy. So that's what's meant by worshiping in spirit and truth. Let me take a negative approach to this because too often this is misinterpreted as saying this is worshiping in tongues. And that's certainly not at all what's involved here. It's worshiping in the will of God. It's worshiping for the glory of God. It's remembering that he's in charge and we're not. And when we can worship in spirit and truth, Oh, how that blesses our Lord, who blesses us immensely. So, Eric, I hope that makes sense to you. It's it's the only way that we really are worshiping the Lord. Let me add one other thing. I was about to go to my next question, but let me add one other thing. Um, It's worshiping him um, by seeking his will for our lives. Every day, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, we were instructed to pray. So that's what worshiping is. Worshiping is, I keep saying I'm about done, and then the Spirit of God, I hope it's the Holy Spirit, brings something else. It's loving the people around you. It's being kind instead of angry or unkind or harsh. It's willing, being willing to help people who need it. It's looking at other people, even difficult ones in your life. Because Jesus loves them. And then loving them. That's worshiping in spirit and in truth. And let me add one last thing, and I promise this is the last thing. You remember that the woman at the well in Samaria, she worshiped God by running into town and bringing virtually the whole village out to meet this man she just met who told her, to everything that she's ever done. Now, that was a little hyperbole, but she shared the good news with others. So we're worshiping in spirit and in truth when we're sharing our faith. And if we're not sharing our faith with other people, we are not worshiping in spirit and in truth just because we're singing a song. 
Thank you. I appreciate that question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Greg in Bulverde on line two. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Good to, good to hear from you. Uh, listen, my Thank question you, is, if, if a young person, you know, they're in their, let's say, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, they mm-hmm. ask Jesus into the heart at, at a young age, but as an adult in their 20s and you know, early 30s, they're like way out in the field. Um, mm-hmm. You know, into there's other ways to God and into also studying, you know, Buddha and it's all these other Eastern, you know, mystic religions. Is that person still had their salvation or have they walked away or maybe they never were saved? Yeah, in all likelihood, Greg, that person was not saved. It was a, 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 a profession um, that really didn't have any substance. I think we have to be really, really careful with kids um, to make sure they know what they're doing, to, uh, to make sure they understand what they're doing. And still, um, only God knows their heart and only God knows um, the level of genuineness uh, to their profession faith. First John chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter two, verse 19 says they went, and John is talking specifically about Judas, but in type, it works for all of us. They went out from us because they were never really a part of us. Now, here's some good news. I can tell you for sure that Jesus takes seriously every profession of faith, every profession of faith. And here's what's going to happen as these young people go out and start wandering around the theological spectrum. There's many ways to God or they decide I can I can sin and God doesn't care. God is going to send his spirit to torment them. And by that, I mean, he's going to make it really hard for them to get too far away. He's going to chase them with a vengeance for the remainder of their lives. But the the, the truth is we can't know the heart that God knows. All we can do is trust that God is going to chase them to the ends of the earth. And I think that's a question that that we, I think most of us who have been parents have. Uh, well, my 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 son or my daughter, they went to church and they made a profession of faith and they were baptized, and then they go out and live these crazy lifestyles that are antichrist. And um, and we want to know and we want to hope. It's almost like our fingers are crossed, hope, 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 hope that they're saved. Uh, but the reality is, when we're adults. That's the moment that we prove who we really belong. Now, now, Greg, let me take just a minute with this because I think this is important. When our kids that were raised in church and made professions of faith go out into this world, what God is allowing in their lives as a test, what God is allowing is their own figurative tree of choice. Adam and Eve had a tree of choice. Don't eat it because when you do, you'll die. Um, if you love me, you will obey me. And, and they made the wrong choice. Well, our children have to be weaned off that childish faith or those childish professions of faith. They need to be weaned away from mom and dad's faith because mom and dad's faith can't save them. And so God will send them out into the world and he will put these tests in front of them. And those tests will demonstrate who, who they really are all about. And uh, I get so thrilled when kids prove that their faith is genuine. Uh, On the other hand, our hearts break, of course, when they start making wrong choices and they are consumed by this world, uh, no longer have any use for the Bible. They find people that will agree with them. But here's how we will know if their faith was ever genuine. They will come back to God. And and just as a pastor of a church that's been around long enough to see a lot of kids grow up, um, many, 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 many of them in their moment of pain, when they get as far down as they can possibly get, they know where to come and then they come back to the Jesus of their youth. When the Old Testament talks about Loving the youth of your, or the wife of your youth. That's a picture for Jesus. He loves them. He's going to chase them. And his desire, of course, he knows what's going to happen. We don't. His desire, Greg, is that they're going to come back. So we don't know. Everybody has to make their own choice. It's one of those things that we simply have to 
uh, trust the Lord with. And we've had a bunch of those kids make professions of faith, go out and make a bunch of dumb decisions, and they come running back to Jesus as adults, which proves that that seed that was planted has grown and has, has matured, and um, they come back. Now, unfortunately, there's people, kids that never come back, and uh, it doesn't matter that they were baptized. It doesn't matter that they made a profession of faith or sang in Christmas plays. Um, at some point, when they're accountable, they have to make their own decision to serve Jesus Christ. And Greg, that's uh, there, there just isn't any sufficient answer. But time proves all things. And in this particular case, um, our hearts are broken and uh, a lot of parents um, got to hold on to Jesus for dear life in that situation. Does that make any sense to you, Greg? Yeah, it does. Makes all sense. And I uh, just want to start appreciate you and Paula. I'm glad you all are there. Oh, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it very, very much. You know, Paul and I, we just got a wonderful text. I didn't get a text. Paul got a text. I can't read him from somebody uh, who has a wayward son, a prodigal. And, uh, they, they've been, God has shown them that he is working in that child's life uh, day by day, answering very specific prayers. There's always hope. We train them up the way they should go, and in the end, the real ones won't depart. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program, 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our program on this cold tuesday 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-5757 here is an anonymous question from our mobile app Hello, Pastor, and good day to you. Thank you. And then he or she says, Can you please explain why you feel Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not truly saved or not actual Christians? Please forgive me if I worded that incorrect, not meant to be offensive, but for knowledge purposes. No problem, you worded it fine, and I almost never take offense to something. So um, no problem at all with that. I say that, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not really saved because they have the wrong Jesus. You see, both of those religions, and that's what they are, in fact, they're both cults, um, they, they've, they've stolen Jesus' identity. They use the same words, and in this particular case, they use the same name, Jesus Christ, but they have the wrong Jesus. And that's what's important. Now, the Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. He was created by God. He was not creator God. That is also true of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I'll explain a little bit more on that in a moment. Um, but but they, they believe he is the son of God, but not God the Son. Now, that's problematic because un- unless you have God, you, you don't have any forgiveness of sins. Only God can forgive sins. And they're Jesus who died for the sins of the world. I mean, they'll use the same language and talking to one. They just have different meanings using the same words. But they feel, or, or they, their doctrinal position, their Christology is that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. It's almost like God the Father had two sons. One turned out bad, one turned out good. And that's simply not the case. And if you have a Jesus who isn't creator God, the one not only who created all things and, and everything that was created uh, was created by him. Um, additionally, he holds all things together. Any other Jesus is not really Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel and, and, and not a creator, but a created being. And they've got all kinds of other aberrant, both these groups have a lot of aberrant theology, aberrant from a Christian, truly Christian perspective. 
But uh, Anonymous, the most important thing here is understand that if you don't have Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the God who spoke and everything that was made was, the one who said, let there be light and there was light. If that's not your Jesus, who was crucified and risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand, the power hand of God the Father in heaven, a Jesus who's going to come back, a Jesus who commands obedience. If that's not your Jesus, then you're not truly saved. It's a Christless religion that uses and misuses the name of Jesus. Again, there's all kinds of other difficulties, but the important thing is you have to have the right Jesus. Every cult, Anonymous, every one, they're cults rather than just religions because they um, miss the character, the nature of Jesus, of God. And that's why Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not truly saved. There's a lot of information out there that's available, um, but... Um, you know, religious activity and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are both very religiously active. They knock on doors. They ride their bicycles. They share their faith with people. Um, but what they're doing is is they're doing all of that, making all of that effort for a lie. And that's why it's really important. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are not real Christians, though they use the name of Jesus Christ. Hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Linda. Uh, Jesus said the Father is greater than he is. Is it still that way in heaven? Um, Yeah, the idea of greater there is not that Jesus is sort of a junior partner of the Trinity. Um, The idea of greater is Um, Jesus was in submission to his father. He said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he had no independent motives for anything. He didn't act independently of his father. He, He and his father were always one. And so in the sense of submission, although his submission was a willing submission, Philippians chapter 2 says he, he didn't consider equality with God, and he is equal with God, the Father, but he didn't consider that equality something to be held onto. And literally, in the, in the Greek, that word picture is he let it go. It's almost like he had, he's holding equality in his hand, and he let it go, and he did it because, Linda, he loves you and he loves me. So the Father is greater than he is in the sense of the Father was the authority that moved his steps. Now, the question, is it still that way in heaven? The answer is yes. That's one of the reasons the sacrifice was so enormous. Jesus forever gave up equality with the Father. Now, remember, he's one. I like to think of it this way, Linda. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all completely equal. And then to save you and to save me, they each had different roles. And Jesus freely gave up his equality with God. He left the worship of angels in heaven to to be worshipped by shepherds. And when he pleased his Father, what did the Father do with his authority? It's like the father said, son, I'm in charge, but here's the decision I made with my authority. I give it to you. Now, that's unity in heaven. And by the way, the same thing is true of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So he gave that authority to his son, and the son resumed to the right hand of God, the power hand of God, and now that authority is Jesus's although it's authority that was granted him by the Father. So there's no conflict, there's no competition, there's no remorse because Jesus gave up his position in heaven uh, as equal with God the Father. 
Um, in fact, there's nothing but rejoicing, and it demonstrates just how wide and high and long and deep the love of God really is. So, yes, the perpetual subjugation or submission of Jesus to the Father uh, is one of the consequences of Jesus' incarnation, and he did that for each and every one of us. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Rita says, Jesus said we have to obey his commandments, and Paul said we are saved by grace. Which is it? Uh, it's both. You see, obeying Jesus is a response of love. And yet the ability to obey Jesus comes from heaven. It's called grace, unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. That's the best definition of grace that I can come up with. And it's freely given to us. And then once we receive it, we obey him, not because we have to, not because to get saved we have to, but because we want to. That's the most beautiful thing, Rita, about being with Jesus. When you're with him, you just want to please him. And your labor turns into a labor of love. And it's an outpouring of gratitude from your heart. And so both of these things are true. Um, We don't obey his commandments to get saved. We obey his commandments because we are saved. And grace simply means that we did nothing and can do nothing at all. To merit God saving us. There's no work involved. It's just a free gift that God gives. And all we have to do is receive it. And once we receive it, then we really do want to obey. So Rita, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much for the question. Denise says, Pastor Ron, to be married in God's eyes, does the wedding have to take place in the church? No, certainly not. The wedding, Denise, has to take place. You know, I know people that live together and say, well, God knows our hearts. We're married in his eyes. No, you're not. You need to get married legally. We also have to follow the law. And in in, uh, the country we live, you've got to be married. There's got to be a license. And that legitimizes the relationship. But the location of the wedding really doesn't mean anything at all. There's nothing unique There's nothing super spiritual about getting married in a church. We have done weddings inside. We've done weddings outside. Uh, We've had people get married by commanding officer uh, in the military because they were uh, wanted. They they need to be married before they went to the next duty station. We've had people married in all kinds of places under all kinds of circumstances. And God's only concern is that you're married. And that he is the center of that marriage. So, no, it doesn't have to take place in a church. It can, but there's nothing sacred about walking down the aisle in a church um, that isn't um, just as, as blessed by God if it's somewhere else. So, Denise, hope that gives you an answer. Just get married. Dedicate the marriage to the Lord. And it is a sacred, sacred event. Here's another anonymous one. What is a gentle way to share the gospel with someone who has just lost a loved one who is an unbeliever? Wow, that's a hard question. And as a pastor who does funerals for uh, a lot of people with unbelieving relatives, uh, and even funerals for unbelievers, I've done quite a few funerals for unbelievers, uh, that's something that's always on your mind. You you want to be aware of the pain and the grief that people are missing. Um, I think what I do, Anonymous, is uh, I want to celebrate the life of the person who is left. Uh, I don't lie. I don't say, well, you know, now they're in heaven or now they're in a better place. Um, but one of the ways that we can celebrate the life is I always give an opportunity for people who are there grieving to share stories, to share memories of the person who's now deceased. And, um, you know, it's a good time. People get to laugh. Um, um, it, it helps heal. 
It helps heal. But make no mistake, after that, I let people know without any question that this person is either in heaven, not because they were a good person, not because of all the good things you said about them, but because they trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation, to forgive them of their sins. I also like to share from the perspective of the person who is now gone. And if that person was an unbeliever or we didn't know, I use Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man who wanted an opportunity to send uh, Lazarus, um, uh, the poor man, uh, send Lazarus back to tell my family members about this. And uh, and Abraham, Father Abraham said, no, can't do it. It's too late. The gap between is too wide. He can't go there. We can't go here. Um, and and the, the perspective of the unbeliever who is in in uh, torment at that particular moment, uh, that person's perspective is, please go share with the people I love that Jesus is real, that he is the truth, and he is the only way to heaven. So we don't celebrate them being tormented, but we let them know what the perspective of their loved one in heaven is. And then when they come and they say, well, what about my mom who died a month ago? Or what about this? Or what about that? We just say, well, you know what? God is gracious. He loves the world so much he gave his son. I pray that your mom knew who Jesus was and and knew him personally. But here's what I can tell you for sure, just as I said in the service, she would want you to know that Jesus is real. And I just leave it at that. So uh, just tell them the truth. Just do it in love. And let them know that if the person that they're concerned about could talk to them in the physical at this moment, that's what they would tell them. So that's what I do. Uh, I've only had a few people get mad at me over all these years as a result, Anonymous. So I think that's the best approach. Always the truth. Always, always, always the truth. Don't give them any hope that an unbeliever is going to be in heaven. Here is a question from Robert. This is a hard one. Pastor Ron, how far do we take the turn the other cheek approach? What about criminals? Should we just let them off until God comes? No, Robert, God is a God of justice. So um, um, sin has consequences. Sin gets punished. And... Um, when when we're told to turn the other cheek, it's Jesus is basically, remember, that's the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling people how to get to heaven without believing in him. You've got to be perfect. Uh, chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew's Gospel, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That sort of summarizes that portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's just Jesus saying, if you want to go to heaven and you don't believe in me, this is how good you have to be. And Jesus raises the stakes. It's not just uh, the, 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 the deed, but the spirit behind the deed that has to be perfect. And turning the other cheek describes what Jesus did for us. So if somebody comes up and hits you, do you have to say, okay, uh, you can hit me in the other cheek too. That's not at all. That's to miss the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Regarding criminals, uh, and people who do bad things, they've got to deal with God, and God is a God of order, and God is a God of justice. So nobody gets off the hook if they somehow are vindicated even though they are guilty by a court of law. Believe me, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and justice will prevail. So personally, we don't need to defend ourselves. Now, we can defend ourselves physically if somebody attacks you. But but the idea is we don't have to worry about somebody's treatment of us, somebody something that they did. It was saying, well, God's got that. And then we, we need to remember to pray for them. We need to pray for them. Somebody asked me with response to a similar question not long ago, well, what about David? He was talking about breaking their teeth and God getting them. Well, David didn't have the Holy Spirit like you and I do. David didn't know about a Jesus who was going to die for his sins. So we pray that God would save the people that have caused us the most pain. That's really turning the other cheek, but it's turning it toward Jesus. 
And remember, that's what he did. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus was meek, the meekest man who ever lived. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus mourned over the condition of this world. So the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew chapter 5, is more specifically geared toward, and we can't forget the Jewishness of it, it's more specifically geared toward that cynic listening to Jesus who says, oh, I'm not going to believe in you. I'm a, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus said, okay, here's the standard. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Robert, if we understand it in any other way, then we will drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out exactly how far to take that principle. We have to understand. That's why we're to study to show ourselves approved. Work men, work women, rightly dividing the word of God. Thank you. I appreciate the question. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely love it. And if for one minute I thought I had to turn the other cheek or somebody stole something, I had to give them something else, then it would be just the opposite. You need to understand what Jesus is saying. Timothy says, my question is about Beth Moore. Is she now teaching in front of men? And if so, does that mean she is a heretic? Um, Timothy, no, she's not a heretic. Um, there are a lot of people who um, have a good grasp of the person of Jesus Christ. Beth Moore is one of those. But a heretic is somebody who distorts or abuses the nature, the character of God. They're trying to change it. Being wrong on a doctrinal position does not make one a heretic. It's not heresy. It's just wrong. And Beth Moore, uh, if she's teaching in front of men, and and I don't mean, you know, if a man wanders into um, a Bible study being given by a woman, I've done that before. Um, That doesn't uh, mean that she should stop speaking or anything like that. Um, Certainly, we're we're discerning, um, and we can judge what she's teaching by the content of what she's teaching. Um, so, so this isn't a prohibition against teaching in front of men. This is a prohibition of teaching from a position of authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's just one, one thought. So, if men come in, that's on her. Um, I, I would. I've never had a woman teach from my pulpit in front of the church assembly, not on a Wednesday night or a Friday night, or a Sunday. Uh, because we want a pastor to be teaching. Um, and Beth Moore, um, frankly, if she is violating that, she's no different than all of the other women who are pastors, uh, who have no business being a pastor. Um, but their message, their message is still, I think, relevant if their Jesus is the right Jesus, if they're rightly dividing the Word of God. Two quick things. One, we need to think the best of people rather than the worst of people. Beth Moore takes a whole lot of flack uh, because she's sort of rebelling against the norm. Um, do I think she's right? No. But, um, you know, we need to pray for her. Instead of people getting so angry, I don't understand why Christians are so angry about stuff like this. If Beth Moore is teaching at a church and she's teaching from a position of authority, um, then just don't go to that church. But why we have to be on the bandwagon to ban Beth Moore, and this poor woman gets all kinds of heat, a lot of it is because she has been Southern Baptist for so long and leaving the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because of the way they treated her, frankly, because of disrespect. Um, um, I, I would have great admiration for if she just left and continued to do what she was doing. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say, and I don't want this to be construed really as criticism, but I don't understand the big deal. I think she's a horrible Bible teacher. Not a heretic, not not horrible doctrinally, but I can't listen to her, and I've tried. I mean, she makes no sense. The applications that she comes up with um, from the passages of Scripture that she's teaching uh, often aren't even loosely connected, uh, and and it just 
I don't know. I, I don't like people to put on a show, and she gets up there like a lot of preachers and puts on a show. And I just don't really understand why she's such a lightning rod other than the fact that she has um, rebelled against the, the conventional thinking of the Southern, Southern Baptist contention, Convention. And I will say one other thing. Uh, she is certainly not as guilty as the, the same amount of sin as the men who over the decades have mistreated her and mischaracterized her and marginalized her. You know, when Beth Moore started hitting a million followers on Twitter, she started getting attention. Before that, the men in the Southern Baptist Convention completely ignored her. So there's a lot of blame to go around on all sides of this, Timothy. But if she's teaching in front of men now, if she's teaching from a position of authority like a pastor, or if she comes to that place where she declares herself to be a pastor, um, then she is wrong doctrinally, period. But that doesn't make her a heretic. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven whose doctrinal positions theologically aren't perfect. And she's just going to be one of them. So, Timothy, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, Let me use the last 30 seconds or so that we've got here today just to say, let's stop worrying about what other people are doing so much. Get off the Internet and get in your Bible and learn to love the people for whom Christ died. I just don't understand why we have to have a boogeyman, or boogeywoman in this case. I don't understand why that makes us feel better, why we feel like we've got to take positions. Uh, Go to a church that you're comfortable in, a church you're being fed, a church that you're able to use the gifts God has given you to serve the body, and stop worrying about churches you're never going to sit inside. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Um, Ron, our prayers, our hearts are with you, and may the Lord bless you and Marilyn. I know she's going to be blessed. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.